Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. So it's this strange thing where because everybody is going through this like hideous experience, you know, there's very little room to articulate it. And to me, one of the strangest things I think about all this is that I often don't really know how other people are are living on a day-to-day level because I think that there's so much stigma in and and for understandable reasons, right? Like you you don't want to talk publicly about which rules you're complying with and which you're sort of cheating and, you know, how you're sort of making this impossible situation worse because you don't really want to create a permission structure. Usually if there's a set of rules that are in some ways unworkable, people will talk publicly about the ways they're working around them. You can't really do that here because you do actually think, you know, you want to encourage everybody to follow all the rules. Hello and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. I am speaking to you as I look out the window in the bedroom of our house in Brooklyn, and it is sunny out, really sunny. It's 52 degrees today. I don't know if this is just a thing for me or if everyone feels this way, but I've never been as attuned to the movements of the sun as I have this year, every single day when I notice it gets a little bit brighter and stays bright a little bit longer, I, I hold on to it like this, this beam of hope that I'm throwing my arms around as I think about spring and the future. And I also don't know if it's just me or maybe you feel this way too, although I imagine a lot of people do, is that there's something about coming up on the one year of the pandemic that is really messing me up. (laughs) I mean, I think if you listen to the show, you know that I already have like a fair amount of um, like obsessive thoughts about my own mortality and the passage of time. And it's something that I'm kind of always sort of dealing with thrumming in the background of my, uh, my brain, my psyche, my soul. But time has been so weird, so stretched and then scrunched in so many strange ways over the last year that the experience of it has been so strange that coming up on these, these mile markers, these anniversaries, like remembering as I have been recently, like the last few live shows we did in front of audiences before everything shut down or remembering the last big reporting trip I took, uh, which was to South Carolina and then immediately to California for Super Tuesday. I was in South Carolina, I think on February 27th for a Friday show, the 28th, which was my birthday, was also the, the the South Carolina primary. Then we got in a plane to California. Then we were in California for Super Tuesday. And, you know, we're now, that's been, a, it's exactly a year. I can remember the last meal I had. I had a great meal in a restaurant in South Carolina uh, with, with, with a good friend of mine on my birthday. And something about all that is just put, you know, it, it, it's put me in a state of trying to process like what what the last year in all our lives has been. And so this is coming out, you know, around the basically one year marker of the pandemic. We're going to do a special show on March 11th, um, which you should tune into. It's going to be the Lincoln Memorial. I'm really excited about it. We've got lots of great reporters telling different stories about this past year of our lives. And we were talking, Tiffany and I and a few of the other producers were talking about like, well, what do we want to do for one year? And we talked about virologists, epidemiologists, public health people. And I was like, well, I just kind of want to talk to a friend, colleague, fellow, you know, journalist, writer, thinker about what our experiences have been like, what this year has been at a human level. And before we get in the conversation, I should just say this, which is an obvious point, is that this pandemic has affected all of us, A, and and also affected us in very different disproportionate ways. So, you know, there are people for whom this year has been um, a year in which they've lost multiple loved ones or a year in which they have been working in ICU wards or as frontline workers or have been under the, you know, punishing metrics of an Amazon fulfillment center or working in congregant settings and long-term care facilities. 
There have been teachers who have been, you know, had to adapt their entire life to teaching online schooling or have been in some places forced into the classroom before they felt safe or ready. Um, you know, there are people who work in the funeral business who have never been busier in their entire lives and are dealing with, A, the busyness of that and the emotional trauma of that uh, fact. There are huge, huge inequities, systemic, structural, along lines of race and class uh, that in terms of how people have experienced this pandemic. And I, as a, you know, person, am extremely profoundly aware in every moment of how lucky I have been, how privileged I have been in so many ways in my experience of this. So as we talk about this, um, I just want to obviously set that context because everyone's experience has been different and, and mine has been, I've been very lucky. I'm, I'm an extremely profoundly, profoundly lucky, fortunate and privileged individual. Um, and I've been aware of that, made aware of that in, in ways that I didn't even anticipate <laughs> before the pandemic, which is part of this conversation uh, as well. All of that said, though, again, it there is a there's a strangeness to it, which is that it both has been very different depending on where you are and who you are and what job you do. But also there is some universality in that we are all in the pandemic. We have all experienced it in our own different ways. And so today I thought I would talk to one of my a good friend, someone I've known for a very long time, um, one of my favorite writers who I, I just I find, you know, she's one of those writers who says things so often in her published column, The New York Times op-ed page, where I think to myself, like, I wish I'd written that or like, yes, that says the thing the way that I wanted to say it, but I couldn't articulate it. Um, she has been an op-ed columnist there for I think several years now, and had a long history of writing books and as a journalist before that, and her name is Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you so much, Chris. You know, I was reminiscing, I was trying to remember as I was preparing for this conversation when we first met, and I think it was 2000, I want to say it was 2006, when did Kingdom Coming come out? Yeah, no, it's 2006, because that's when Kingdom right. Coming came out, and you, I think, brought me to Chicago to talk about it. I brought you to Chicago to talk about it. I was very, like, um, so I was 27. I was, you were you were a much more accomplished sort of senior reporter to me. I really, like, looked up to you. <laughs> you had published a book, which is very fancy and official. Um, I invited you to Chicago. I, I had a book talk for you in these times. I remember taking you to, like, I wanted to, like, show you a good time. I remember taking you to this this great, like, sandwich shop called Milk and Honey, which is on Division Street. Um, I don't know if it's there anymore, but I, like, really wanted you to, like, I was, like, all nervous. I felt like you're, like, chaperone. I wanted you to, like, be impressed and have a good time and see, I was see how cool Chicago was. <laughs> I was like, we did think, and we moved to Chicago a couple of years. That's later. right. That's right. Actually, so I did. I did a good job. Um, so yeah, we briefly. I should say we very briefly. Chicago, very briefly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we met a long time ago, and we've been sort of, you know, we've been kind of, I think, in some ways, colleagues or um, interlocutors for a really long time. And I know that you know, you and I have gone back and forth, and I think um, in some ways we have similar situations in that we both have young children, um, and I think that's been that's like a one way in which. Again, this sort of kaleidoscopic experience of the pandemic, like that's a special category, <laughs> um, you know, having young kids in this. But I, I guess, you know, you've also, I think, you've been someone who's, I think, articulated some of the sort of just emotional anguish of this experience in a way that I found very relatable and affecting. And as we come up on this year, I, I just let's start with just a kind of like, where is your head at? Where is your head and heart at right now? So I actually think sometimes that I have handled the pandemic like worse than almost anybody that I know. That's um, why I wanted to talk to you. I was like, <laughs> I was like, you know who's been a freaking hot mess this past year? Michelle Goldberg. Can like we I, get her on the I podcast? Like I see people who say things like, you know, who, who feel like, you know, for the for them, like the pandemic has really brought home to them how fortunate they are. And that's obviously true on an intellectual level, but I've never been one. To me, it's that, it, it's right, if somebody told you, you know, two years ago, you're going to go a year, your kids are going to be home, they're not going to see their friends, you're barely going to see any of your friends, you're not going to be able to go to work, do anything that you enjoy. Um, you would think that sounds like unbelievably traumatic, and, and maybe you'll never get over it, or at least I would think that, right? And the fact that other people have their own mass trauma sort of doesn't lessen that. And in some ways, you're kind of a psychopath if other people's pain makes yours, lessens yours. Um, right. 
And so it's this strange thing where because everybody is going through this like hideous experience, um, you know, there, there's very little room to articulate it. And to me, one of the strangest things I think about all this is that I often don't really know how other people are are living on a day-to-day level because I think that there's so much stigma in and and for understandable reasons, right? Like you you don't want to talk publicly about which rules you're complying with and which you're in which you're sort of cheating and right. you know how you're sort of making this impossible situation worse because you don't really want to create a permission structure. Usually if there's a set of rules that are in some ways unworkable, people will talk publicly about the ways they're working around them. You can't really do that here because you do actually think, you know, you want to encourage everybody to follow all the rules. Um, And you, you know, and so like, that's why you'll sort of see people say, well, if you're going to do these things, at least keep it to yourself. And that's, that's probably good advice, but it just means that it's this very alienating experience of not knowing what, what other people are really doing with themselves. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the weird things about this year, it's a great place to start of just like, well, first of all, I think that the sort of socialization part and something about think particular about you that people should know is that like you moved to New York City when you were what, like 19, right? I started college when I was 16 um, outside of New York City. Then I got an apartment in Brooklyn. Um, Then I left and I came back in my early 20s. And you're someone, you know, you're someone who you grew up around Buffalo um, but you're like one of these people, you know, that that you will meet if you're in New York City who just like loves New York City and loves cities and in a in a deep existential way. And I feel that way, too. I grew up in New York City. And I do think that when you're talking about the sort of sense of loss you had, like I do think people who live in big cities and, and grow up in big cities, there is a certain affection, love, naturalness you have to like crowds of people, crowded subways, bars, restaurants, cafes, like all these things that are the features of them. And then from one day to the next, they're just gone. And it does leave a big hole. <laughs> Your life kind of depends on public facilities to a way, in, in a way that it wouldn't if you lived in the suburbs, right? And right, I Because the relative- choice you make, the trade-off you make is like, it's super expensive. You have less space in your home and more things you can do outside of your home. So I have two, like, you know, so I have two kids. They were, um, they're six and eight now. They were five and seven at the beginning of this. I don't think we had spent a day together at home before all this. Wow. Like, I just, we just would, it would never have occurred to me, you know, we, I mean, we would be in and out of the house, right? But just like an entire day at home, I couldn't, I really couldn't have imagined it. Um, and my life wasn't built for that. My house wasn't built for that. Um, you know, I have, I have sort of, I'm pro- I have less domestic um, ability really than anyone I've ever <laughs> met, right? Like I see you on Instagram, you know, making pasta. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know? And so, you know, we, we went out for most meals. We were just, we did things fully, out in the world. Fully urbanized creatures. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I got I had this irrational anger at the beginning when everybody was baking bread, even though, you know, nobody at any point has suggested to me, Michelle, you should really bake your own bread. But even just the like sort of ambient cultural hint of it, like enraged <laughs> me. Because because it was a signifier. I was of like, the- we live in the like what do you like? You to- go buy bread. <laughs> I have like <laughs> no, but that's that's true. Like there was this kind of enforced domesticity that came over everyone, and I think that you know again that th- this is another place where like the unequalness of that hit so hard, right? Like, I mean, and this is a place where I kept thinking to myself, like both like when I was frustrated, it really did make me think about my own like w- how lucky I was because I keep thinking to myself like. You know, I, I I used to work for a tenant organization in the Bronx, or housing organization in the Bronx. My father was an organizer in the Bronx. Like, you know, some of the most crowded housing in the country is in the Bronx. It's the reason that the Bronx had one of the worst outbreaks in the world and in the country. And it's like, I just kept thinking like, oh, I feel like a little cramped in here. And then it's like, I know, I have been in and talked to people and know folks that live in apartments in the Bronx that are two bedrooms with seven people. <laughs> right. Like, no, it's, it's, like, it's like, holy, what people, right, like what people like, went through was 
was intolerable, right? It's kind of why I'm, you know, talking to you about my own angst, but I, you know, didn't write much about it, right? Because it's very far down on the sort of scale of suffering caused by this pandemic. Right. But I did feel like to me, there was also a way in which that was a window into some kind of like broader empathy, you know, because I, I kept having the thought I would have this thought about schooling. I had this thought about, you know, space. I would have these thoughts about, you know, missing loved ones. I would have this thought about worry about elders, you know, the, the, the people who are over 65 in my life, including, you know, my parents, my in-laws, my aunts and uncles, like we've had a few scares. We've had some health issues. I lost my beloved uncle, not to COVID, but, but he, he died last spring and we couldn't mourn him. We couldn't sit Shiva. We had to do it all on Zoom because it was like the worst, worst part of the lockdown. So I've had all those experiences. Yeah. I mean, my last, we lost uh, my husband's mother also not because of COVID, but it was also impossible to memorialize her. That, that part of it to me was really, has been really brutal. I've now been through, you know, it's now been three, I think three or four times that there's, I've been a part of a Zoom memorial or, um, and that that part of it, like you really rediscover the profundity of our collective grieving rituals in person when they are taken away mm-hmm. from you. Um, and I found that in all cases just so brutal to not be able to like hug the people that you're you want to grieve with, the people you love, um, to not be able to be in communion. I mean, even that feeling when you, you know, w- when you're when you go into a house where people are sitting Shiva or if it's, you know, awake in the, you know, more sort of Catholic and Irish tradition that my, my father's side comes from, or you come from the cemetery into someone's house for like the reception, that feeling of like almost the sort of body heat of other people, the crowdedness, Mm -hmm. you know, the loudness and how viscerally necessary that is to the process of grieving and the absence you feel when you're like on a zoom on it. It's like really brutal. Yeah, we haven't, I actually, I have not, we didn't do anything with Zoom. Um, I think they just decided it was better not to do anything and to just wait until this is all over to do something. But your, your, Matt's, Matt's mother passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, over the summer. And how was that? I mean, it was, you know, it was brutal for him. It was, I mean, it wasn't a surprise. Um, she had cancer and we, and, and we were with her, right? We kind of, you know, I'm talking about like the rules that people broke, um, right. you know, we just went to her house and yeah, that, were with her at the end. I mean, look, that you don't, look, <laughs> to, to get back to the point you made before about the fact that like one of the things that's maddening about this pandemic has been, it's all been privatized. It's been pushed down onto individuals and behavior because the government failed to combat and then suppress the virus. (laughs) And so, you know, we've lived with it for a year and we've all had to make risk assessments. Um, And, you know, you wrote a really good column about sort of not judging other people's risk assessments, which I really thought Well, you know, I had this conversation very early on. I sort of wanted to, you know, it was when, when the pandemic was really at its worst in New York, I wanted to write a piece about what is it like to live in one of the housing projects, um, in Brooklyn that's been hardest hit. And, you know, a friend of a friend put me in touch with a woman about my age, somebody who's a community activist um, in the NYCHA houses where she lives. And we're having this conversation. And after about like a half hour, I thought I can't write, I can't write about this Um, because she's, she basically told me like, no, I'm not, I'm not social distancing. Like we need each other too much. I'm not having people in my house, but I'm going to my boyfriend's house and, you know, when other people need us, they come over and, you know, you don't want to think that when the zombie apocalypse comes, your friends are going to lock their door on you. And, you know, we're, we're taking vitamins and we're, we're trying to be safe, but we're, we're not going to not be together. And that made perfect sense to me. And I could kind of imagine myself making a similar calculation in, in her shoes but I wasn't going to write that for a couple of reasons. Like one, because I didn't, I certainly wasn't going to use her name because even though she wasn't ashamed of what she was telling me, I just thought I'm not going to bring down the judgment of, you know, the internet and New York Times readers on this woman. And, and also I didn't want to act like the story, like the story she was telling me was, was generalizable because I have no idea if it was right. And so I'm not going to, I would have to do like a huge reporting project to see if, her story sort of tells you anything about the circumstances of um, in, in which she's living. 
right? I mean, it's just what she was telling me seems so fraught. And again, it's sort of, I, I think I would probably make a pretty similar calculation. I have a pretty high tolerance for risk and a pretty low tolerance for discomfort. Um, mm. so, <laughs> so, you know, so I try, I've tried really hard throughout all of this to be a good citizen, right? I mean, I do follow the rules, um, but it's not sort of my natural, like, you know, so here's a story when there was a, a bird flu in Hong Kong in the 90s. And as soon as it happened, Matt and I went there because we were like, holy shit, tickets are so cheap. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like avian flu thrill seekers. <laughs> Just like following the hot spots of various <laughs> of various uh, novel novel flus, that is really 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 funny. That's been actually one of the ways in which this virus has kind of hacked us as a, as humans. Is that you know, and I've tried to explain this. It really is the case that like you know, for a otherwise healthy you know forty two year old like myself, you know, the risk of the risk is relatively small. It's higher than a lot of other things. And, you know, we're, there's long COVID. There's There are 42-year-old folks that do get hospitalized, do get intubated, do die. Like, that happens. But the the bigger problem is the collective risk, right? I mean, and this is, again, this is the, this, this is where, like, this is all a public policy problem, which is like, and I've said this before, you know, if you get, like, an off-market non- certified electrician to wire your house and they kind of know what they're doing, like, you know, again, what are the odds that your house lights on fire? Say it's one in 10,000, right? But if you're in a city with 8 million structures, like, that's an enormous catastrophic problem. That's why you have fire codes, <laughs> right? And like, that's the problem we have here. It's like, we've seen it time and time again that like the problem is exponential growth and limited capacity of healthcare systems means that eventually you just overrun the banks, even if it's the aggregate of a bunch of individual risk choices that in the individual sense are not crazy risk choices. And that, that keeps being the thing we keep coming back to time and time again, which again is why I find like the privatization of the messaging a little insufficient. Well, and it's sort of why you need like an ethic of solidarity, which I've, you know, I've, exactly. I've really tried, like I, I can sympathize again with the people who say, I don't want to give up my, who say, you know, it's worth it to me to take this small amount of risk to have something akin to a normal life because a year of your life is a lot, right? It's like more than it's it's more than one percent of your life unless you live for a really long time. Yeah. If you have kids, I think about this all the time. It's like eight percent of their childhood. Uh, it's a third of my kids' life. I mean, my right. my three year old it doesn't literally has no memories from pre pandemic of when like right the, right right she yes. refers to as the sickness. Like it's like we we can't get too close to them. We'll get the sickness. You know, like this is her defining feature. This is her defining understanding of the world. Yeah, no, and I think all the time about you know how this is going to shape my kids, and my kids have been extremely aware of what they've lost in a way that's really heartbreaking and in a way that has always, that makes me kind of keep going back and forth about, you know, I'm like both kind of, t you know, taking all these precautions to be a good citizen and also to protect myself. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm really scared of long COVID, um, like really scared of it. I'm really scared of what it would mean if I couldn't think anymore. Cause people talk about this brain fog, right. Like what that would mean to who I am in the world. Um, you know, but all of this, so, so we've pulled back in all of these ways for this thing that is of very, very little risk to them, right? Like they are making these unbelievable life-altering sacrifices and, you know, not to protect themselves, right? Like to protect their family, to protect their community. And so, you know, I feel like, you know, in, in some of these places where people say, well, I'm not going to do this, it only makes sense if somebody's sort of inculcating in you this idea that that you're sort of part of a larger effort. You're part of society, yeah. But it's hard yes. to feel like part of a larger effort when there is no larger effort. Right, and there's also like we don't really do a good job with ethics of solidarity in our society. It's not a it's not a trait that's cultivated. I mean, like it's really fascinating to go to you know to look at some of the propaganda posters in like China at the beginning of the virus. Um, 
you know, they're these very, I mean, I think to the American ear, they they sound, you know, sort of totalitarian or Maoist or something, you know, it's like we unite, like people unite against the virus, like this, all this sort of very kind of propagandistic, like we link arms together to defeat the common enemy. But, you know, again, they had this, they have a totalitarian sort of surveillance system in China that they use to suppress the virus. But it is also the case that like that part of the ethos of, com- of both compliance and solidarity, which is, you know, part of um, the longstanding, you know, structure of of the CCP and, and its hold on society, like was part of it as well. And I think that, you know, you saw this in Vietnam, too, to a certain extent, like we just don't have a language to talk about that, like about like solidaritaristic sacrifice. Well, right. And I think often people feel like if they're if they're sort of suckers, if they're making those sacrifices, if they if the people around them aren't. Right. Yes. And that so then you get this constant kind of like I just feel like that with so much of the sort of free rider plus shame, you know, the, these sort of constant degree of, of free ridership and shame. And then, you know, the thing that I always found sort of heartening and fascinating was that like, again, when you went into the data, what you found was that like very high percentages of people across ideological, cultural, spatial, and political divides were really trying to do their best. Right. You know, <laughs> like that was actually what the, that, I mean, I'll never forget like early on, it was like just when we were coming out of like total lockdown. And I think it was April and it was sort of starting to be warm out, like going for a masked bike ride on a bike path and passing a guy on this, I'll never forget this image. It was like, it was a guy on, it was a two seater bike. It was he and his wife, middle-aged white folks in their, maybe like their fifties on a, on a twin bicycle in camo jackets and big Trump masks. <laughs> and I was just like, right on dude. Like, <laughs> like whatever your politics, like, I'm glad you're masked up. We're all getting some air out here. <laughs> like, and that, that image stuck with me where it's like, it was true. There was a kind of polarization that happened. We saw that in the polling. We saw that in behavior, but it was also the case that like, there was actually a fair amount of unity. And there was, you know, David Wallace Wells said this to me, you know, eight weeks or so into the pandemic, maybe even less of just like the sort of positive part of it was like, it's amazing to see how much of human behavior can change essentially on a dime. Like there was a period of time where 2 billion people were essentially in their houses. And like, that's an incredible feat of human coordination. When you, when you take a step back and you think, oh my God, like on a dime societies across the world with totally different governing institutional structures, languages, cultures, traditions, and histories, right? Like as disparate as you can get, they were all doing this thing. And that to me was actually sort of an amazing thing. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there are people who have found satisfaction in the pandemic? Because I feel like that's like the kind of conservative accusation, right? It's like, oh, you you people love this. You love telling people how to live. Um, and, you know, I'm like, what are you talking about, right? I mean, this is, if, I was thinking the other day that I'm sure if I had to figure out what were the worst 100 days of my life, 90 of them have been in the past year, um, right? This has just been intolerable to me. Um, but then, but I do sometimes feel like there maybe are people who found it either sort of cozy or um, satisfying in that it, you know, took out a lot of the both like decision fatigue and like external stresses. Part of the difficulty, I think, in figuring out how other people were reacting to it is that it, you know, forced so much online where kind of everybody's at their worst. And, right. you know, right. and so you only see people, um, you know, shaming each other or judging each other or, you know, kind of virtue signaling about like how they haven't, you know, interacted with another person in 10 months. Um, there do seem to be people who find some sort of meaning in in doing the pandemic right. Or yeah. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I think there's some, look, I mean, I think, you know, we're all individual snowflakes. Like, I think that, you know, I know that term has been a source of opprobrium, but like, you know, I, I think different strokes for different folks. I think for some people, it, it it has been, there's aspects of quote unquote normal life um, that they found hard in ways that quarantine life does not, you know, takes away. Um Again, I also think it's like, again, to go back to this sort of the kaleidoscopic experience of this. I mean, there are people who 
have never been busier in their jobs, you know, <laughs> like who have had the best year they've ever had in, in, in their work, you know, selling cars, you know, after quarantine lifted, like right. cars we, we were just like, bought a car. Yeah. Well, you could, I mean, so there's, I think there's people that for whom it's been, you know, it's been the, the, even the economic effects of it have been profoundly uneven. So I think like, I think what I, what I would say is that I think like with everything, there's no one experience and there's, there's just a wide distribution depending on like what people were doing. I think, you know, one thing that I will say, um, the one part of my life pre COVID that I found hard to deal with was the fact that because of my schedule, I would only see my kids, my big kids, I would see them 40 minutes every day about max. And those 40 minutes would be between getting up and go and walking to school. And as any parent or even kid, someone who once was a kid knows, like those are the 40 most like rushed, harried minutes of the day. It's like, no, no, do you have your, you have, no, go back up. No, go, I'm not getting your socks. You go get your socks. No, you go get your socks. Okay, I'll go get your socks. <laughs> you stay here. <laughs> like, you know, just this back and forth, this sort of rushed um, headlong thing to get out the door and get to school in time. And then I would come home, you know, I'd come home at 10 o'clock and my kids are in bed and that's that's what I got for the day. And that, I didn't like that. That bummed me out. Um, and so in that way, that's changed and I like the fact that I see my kids a lot more. Yeah, I um, I, <laughs> I, feel like I, feel, I, mean, I feel like I'm supposed to, right? Like that's kind of what you're supposed to like they see as a silver lining. No, I, I like your I honesty. Really, I feel really guilty about it. I mean, it's not that I don't, it's not that I only want to see them for 40 minutes a day, but I definitely don't want to see them 24 hours a day. Well, um. <laughs> there's a happy, I mean, I think also like, yeah, like I think everyone being in the same, under the same roof all day is also too much, you know, like I, there's, to me, there's a happy medium that's not that, but it, it has, there are parts of it that I think when I think about the, 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 the sort of, you know, appreciating, I also think it has made me appreciate, and I think this is, I don't want to get too prying into the state of your, you know, marriage or whatever, but like, I, I say this all the time to Kate, like, I really love the company of my wife. <laughs> like, she's just, I just love hanging out with her. And, you know, that's not true of all couples. <laughs> like, I think, you know, some couples have like, there's a wide spectrum of how much I think people like hanging out with each other. And some are, some couples have very kind of um, bickery, fighty dynamics that works for them. And some have very kind of like, you know, remote doing their own thing dynamics. Like there's different dynamics, different structure, different folks. Like for my own self, I will say that it has been a source of joy and comfort that I keep returning to that I like. I just really genuinely like spending time with Kate. And you and I are similar in that, like, we are both, like, got married really young for our age or for our kind of cohort. Yeah, and have been right? with the person that we're with since we were, like, 19. Yeah, and right, have been yeah. with the same person for, like, a very long time. Um, you know, and my husband's much more kind of competent at daily life than I am in a way that, like, the pandemic has really, really... Um, <laughs> brought out emphasized <laughs> emphasized yes i mean i'm sort of my impulse has always been like we've got to find a way out of this like right like i was like we have we we have got to get out of this we have to get out of the country if we have to let's move to barbados let's um you know we just we've got to get away and you know and and matt can sort of like make things work wherever we are has that been good or bad well you know, I would say, look, I mean, well, I would say, look, I think it's been all good for me. I right. think that like the pandemic has been, you know, really me at my absolute worst um, because like everything that I'm sort of good at doing, you know, I'm like good at like taking yeah, it's the like kids. We got, dro we got dropped on like a survivor, you know, survivor game show Island. And it's like, well, I can write a good lead and a good kicker, and right, and I, I can, can like take, I could pair a wine, and I can you know sort of find the best restaurants, and I can right. like you know figure out like the kind of coolest places to take our kids, um, and I can. He's like, I can make fire, and I, <laughs> yeah, you know, right? I don't really know how to make or make anything, um, yeah. you know, and I just I, I don't really like to play. You know, I mean, I'll play like backgammon, but I don't 
I'm not a playful person. You know, I like to take my kids places. There's been like a lot of kind of tap dancing of, you know, because my kids are really have have really suffered, not suffered nearly as much as other kids in this country. Um, But, you know, tell tell them that, right? Like that doesn't make things any easier for them. And I have really felt a lot of the times like I really have to tap dance to make them feel like this is not just a lost year, Um, you know, because my son will constantly say like, I'm never, you know, this is one, I'm never going to get this Halloween back. I'm I'm never going to get, you know, we went a whole summer without going to Coney Island and, you know, I was seven and now I'm eight and I'm never going to be seven again. Um, Wow. That's, that's tough. That, 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 that's exactly the way that I thought as a kid. Obviously they, my kids have it very, very well. Right. Um, but they, but, but they're kids and they feel lost and that's, that's okay. And they don't, yeah. Right. And, you know, and there was a time when my son was crying every single night, you know, and asking every single day when he gets to take his mask off. And so we have tried really, really, wow. really hard to make things fun for them to, you know, go to the drive-in to constantly find things to do. Um, I like for their birthday parties, I hired um, this like animal rescue guy who brought all these exotic animals to our backyards that, you know, and we invited like a couple of their friends over with masks to hang out with these animals. Um, You know, I've kept trying to plan things that would be so that they wouldn't just look back on this as, as a lost year. And it's, exhausting. We'll be back after this quick break. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. I mean, for me, the thing that has been striking about my kids is just like the, you know, that kids need, particularly for my my middle child, David, who's six, about to be seven, you know, most of what schooling is at that age, I mean, they're learning to read and they're, and learning to write and learning basic arithmetic and all that's really important. But, you know, the biggest part of it is just socialization. Mm-hmm. It's learning how to, you know, be with other people in collective settings in which certain norms are enforced and um, and – you know, when you take that away, first first of all, it becomes harder to enforce those norms, right? I mean, a kid acting out in the middle of 25 or 30 kids in a classroom is sort of more of a scene than a kid acting out, you know, one-on-one in their Zoom, in the confines of their, 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 their home. But also, like, you know, we went sledding the other day on this hill and um, – you know, it was a really lovely scene and David had his mask on and everyone had their mask on and he met these two other kids a year older and they had similar sleds and they got really into it and they were just sledding together and he just, you know, afterwards it was just like, it was like the most normal mundane kid interaction, like the way you meet someone at a playground or in a pool and you make friends for the 40 minutes you're together, right? Mm-hmm. And it just, he was on, he was, you could just see he was on top of the world afterwards and it's like the, the most mundane little bit of socialization that it's just not been there. Right, and but that that's part been taken it, away from them. Yeah, yeah that part and of then, it is and brutal. Then, right, and trying to, and, and kind of you can't be that person for them. And no. And trying to be that person for them is like exhausting and frustrating for Right, because you're everyone. not a seven-year-old boy, right? <laughs> like You, you know, you, and like, that's no, one of the things that we've cheated on from time to time in, in different ways. Um, when this all started, we moved in with two other families. And this was when we thought it was going to be just a few weeks, right? Like, so we rented a house upstate that had like another house um, on the property and other friends of ours rented that. And we thought like, we're just going to kind of hunker down and wait out this next three weeks. Um, 
And I remember feeling guilty when everybody else was, you know, talking about how isolated they were, having not seen anyone for weeks. And we were kind of having these group dinners and our kids were putting on plays, you know, but then we realized that this isn't going to be three weeks. This is going to be a lot longer than that. And so, you know, so we've gone kind of long, long, long stretches living like everyone else, um, you know, in isolation and then periods of time where we did, you know, get tests and other people got tests and we moved in together for a while and then, you know, went back to our, back to our lives. And that's kind of what's kept me going. I know how lucky we are to have been able to do that. We also at one point basically said that the kids could see their upstairs neighbor as much as they wanted, that we, that we weren't even going to kind of try to keep them, keep them apart anymore. Um, You know, and that we were just going to like accept a certain amount of risk so that they could, you know, have some happiness. Yeah. I mean, those, I think those trade-offs have been there for lots of people. We, you know, this summer, the bet, one of the highlights we had this, we ran this little camp out of our home and we had another, another couple, their two kids, and we were sort of all potted up together and the adults took turns with shifts overseeing the kids. And, um, and they had this little world, you know, this little social world. I mean, my, my youngest had a friend. She, she doesn't, She's three years old. Like, she doesn't have any friends. <laughs> I mean, you know, but she's very lucky that she has these older siblings who she plays with and loves and adores. And so she has, like, she's not, like, you know, alone. There is, like, this all this kind of life around her and these relationships. But, you know, my other two kids by the age of three, like, they had friends. Like, you know, when they turned three, there were a bunch of friends to invite to the three, you know, they're, they're turning three birthday party, right? Like, Anya's got like one, maybe two pals, like, cause she spent the last year in, in you know, quarantine. It's like. Right. That- and this is, and you know, this is part of what makes the kind of school reopening thing so fraught is because I'm sort of not willing to let my kids live the way they would live if they were in purely remote school. Right. Like they have been in a pod, they have seen other people, um, and so there's been this thing of like, you know, is the sort of moral progressive position to say, well, you know, of course, like the school should stay closed. It's like, I can completely understand why if you're a teacher, you would say, no, I'm not willing to accept even a small amount of risk to, you know, kind of return to schools given the disinvestment in them and kind of given that I can't really trust um, anybody else to look out for my safety. You know, but if you are a parent who's sort of not willing to accept that for your own kids, right, is the moral position to say, well, that's good enough for other kids? Well, that's, I mean, right, this is precisely why it's so fraught. And it's, I mean, we sh- there's a few things here, right? You and I both, I mean, our kids are in public school here in New York City. I should say that our kids are in public school and they're, they've been in remote school uh, since last March, we opted into remote school this year mostly because the message was sent basically saying, look, for physical reasons, there's only so many kids we can accommodate in hybrid physical school. So if you have the ability, the resources, the capacity to keep your kids fully remote, that helps out the school community because it creates more space. So we said, okay, good, we will do that. Um, you know, I really strongly would like them to be in in person full-time school. Um, we are people who are lucky enough that we could, you know, find a private school and and pay for that. But, you know, we're both products of public school. We both really believe in public school. We love the local public school that we send our, our kids to. The teachers are great. We really like the principal, all that stuff. The, here, here's how I think about this conundrum. So <laughs> this is my thought experiment, right? Like if you I'm going to I'm going to give my my take on this from two different sides, right? So if you back in, let's say back in 2009, right, in the in the midst of recession, you have this like brutal austerity regime that was pressing down on all the states. Imagine like Eli Broad Foundation and Bill Gates and a bunch of like neoliberal education funders came out with a big plan saying, "Look, in an age of austerity, fewer capital expenditures, stretched state budgets, we think the future of school is Zoom school. <laughs> and, we, right. and, and, and we think that to save money, we can deliver the same experience with just kids 
going remotely. And that gets rid of all the overhead of all these schools. We don't have to do physical schools. It gets, it cuts down on commuting. It does all these things. Like the, the correct proper left right, view be like, Fuck that, you. The, would be fuck you. <laughs> like, are you out of your mind? Like that would be the view of people on the left. It would be the view of the teachers unions themselves. It would be the view of liberal politicians. It would be like, no, schools are communities. They are active, vibrant places where people meet, where kids get services, where they get food, where they get healthcare, where they see each other, where they interact, where like there's a million things happening in a school that are above and beyond. Like that would obviously be the position that everyone would have correctly, right? Now, in this case, this has been imposed not as some like brave new world model, but because like it's the best we can do under conditions of a global pandemic. So like I totally get that. It's just that obviously it's worse, right? Like let's all agree, like obviously this is worse. And this question of like, well, what's the cost benefit is a really fraught and complicated one. On the other side of this, the thing I always think about is like, I love the New York City subway and I've read the research. I'm someone who like, you know, consumes this information for a living. I know that the subway with a mask is safe and I haven't really been back in the subway. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just my own, you know, I just, we all have our own sort of irrational, like, superstition skeeved out right. thing. Right, and, and like, even, I don't even think it's superstitious on the part of the teachers, right? It's about... Right, it, no, that's so that's my point. It's like, you can say to teachers, like, look, it's safe. And it's like, when I look at my, when I introspect to myself, it's like, you can tell me the subway's safe and I can read the reports and I'm still like, I don't really know if I want to go on the subway. <laughs> like, and, and so, like, I get the reticence. I mean, I think, you know, the answer is like, let's vaccinate everyone and get them back in school. Um but like it is really fraught. And then the thing on top of it. That makes but at the same time, I just I've never, you know, I've never thought it was good enough for my kids. I really, you know, and that's been the hard thing. Right. So we put our kids in a pod. Um, so they're still kind of technically enrolled in their public school, but they are being taught by these pod teachers with other kids. And and then for a while, my son, my son was crying every single night. He would say things to me like, I wish I wasn't alive. And the thing that he would talk about was not missing his friends, um, you know, he misses friends, but the thing he was talking about more than anything else was Zoom. And I I finally kind of went like full Karen and called his school and said, he's not doing Zoom classes anymore, or he'll do one a day um, because he just, this is like breaking his spirit. And yeah. so, you know, again, it's like, it's it's a difficult thing to say, you know, this isn't good enough for my kids, but as like a matter of public policy, Am I going to say it's- Yes, I mean that, and then the other added wrinkle, right? The thing that really makes this even more fraught and complicated is that there's huge differences in the willingness and readiness of parents by socioeconomic status and 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 race to put their kids in schools. Right. Right. So, like, you've got Although this I very. Feel like sometimes this gets overstated. Like, people will say, "Well, you know, white parents have returned to New York City schools at the highest rate," which is true. But right. just in terms of overall numbers, most of the kids who are back are Correct. black yes. and Hispanic. Yes. Most of the kids who are back are black and Hispanic, but that's also – right. It's a little bit of the artifact, the fact that New York City public schools are 80 percent non-white, right? But there clearly are racial disparities in willingness of families with school-age kids to, to send their kids back and, the, and their reticence about the safety, which then like sort of also slices and dices us in all sorts of ways, right? So you end up in this weird dynamic, I think, a lot of times where it's like – you know, you and I are in this, like, there's a very small, there's a small Venn diagram of basically, like, relatively affluent white professionals in major cities who send their kids to public schools. Um, like, that's a relatively small percentage of the public school population in any city, but, like, represent a big part of the media. Right. <laughs> so, like, there's a sort of strangeness there, too, where I think, like, there's a little bit of this unrepresentative distortion happening because I think that people like ourselves are are way overrepresented in the media, even though we're like a tiny sliver of any, you know, possible cohort of, of public school parents. But all that said, it's like whatever the policy solution is here, and I tend to think like let's focus on vaccinating staff, school administrators and teachers and getting kids back into physical school is like, you know, there are three million teachers in America and we're doing 1.6 or 1.7 million shots a day. Like, this we should we can do this, <laughs> but to go back to just your the, the experience of it, it's like all of us who look at screens all day understand that it's not good for us. 
a six-year-old should not like a, my six-year-old. It is clearly breaking. Like it's it's not good. It's just like it's so obvious <laughs> that it's not good to put a six-year-old in front of a screen all day. No, it's terrible for them. And it would have been. I think we would have been better off if we'd given kids like I don't know what the right age is. Um, you know, and obviously I'm not an education expert, but I think we would have been better off if we had given most younger kids just put them in camps or not actual you know not in tournament camps. But like, <laughs> but like summer camps, right? Just said like, you know, if you can't be in the classroom, you can be like outside, you know, not necessarily with a teacher with, um, right? you know, and sort of like forgot about the academic part and just focused on. Oh, I see what you're saying. Rather than right, choose the socialization over instruction rather than choosing instruction over socialization, essentially. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Like, would it have been better? I mean, again, then you you know, you're, you're, you had the same problem, which is who's going to staff that, and how are they going to be? You know, make sure that they're um, right. But you could have teenagers who are you know basically outside all day. Um, right. Right. Yeah. You could. I, it, I think it could have been done. Um, I mean, it's, right. It's, it's more it's, doable if you just say, "Look, we're chucking the curriculum, and we're not going to. We don't have to worry about that. Let's get competent. You know, relatively young people whose risk is the lowest." to basically shepherd kids around outside as much as possible. <laughs> right. Like if you can only, you know, you, I mean, what do you need? You need childcare. You need like kind of socialization for your kids and you need academics. And if you can only have two of those things, it seems like academics is the least important. And instead, that's the only one that anybody really right. focused on. That was also the really crazy and enraging thing to me was that like all these decisions ended up you know, again, over the past year, like all these decisions have been made along these these market lines, right? So it's like, you know, one of the was like six-year-olds are on Zoom school, but college freshmen are going to be going to campus. And it's like, wait, what? Like, what are you talking about? Uh, like 19-year-olds can do Lit 101 and their intro to ancient philosophy. They, that you can do online. Yeah, exactly. Like the six-year-olds need to be playing with each other. Like how is it? And the answer to that is like, well... There's no market reason that you have to put six-year-olds in school together, right? So there's no that that's not being prioritized. But bars, like bars, are going to live or die. And I didn't, you know, I again, this is one of these things where like I don't no shade on anyone. Like I was just trying to survive in this. So like I get why bars and restaurants wanted to open because they have businesses that they love and want to preserve. They're their life's work. They have people they want to employ. Like. But, right, but know, the whole thing is just an example of how when you don't have, you know, actually like a government taking care of you and it's everyone for themselves and everything is privatized, um, you know, not only do you make sort of terrible socially counterproductive decisions, but then the only mechanism you have to enforce any kind of um, like pro-social behavior is shaming people for going into restaurants, Right. Right. Open, you open the restaurants and then at the press conference where you do tell people not to go to the restaurants, which was like, this is like, that was like the classic kind of like COVID message for a lot <laughs> of this period was I have to open them as the governor or the mayor because these things are going to fail. But my public health people are telling me like probably not great to have indoor dining open. So what you split the difference by being like <laughs> today we're opening restaurants at 25 capacity. You should stay home and not leave your house. Like, okay. Thanks. And and then you get the craziness of like, you know, the, the playgrounds are shut down because, again, that's the thing you can do and you don't cost anyone their livelihood or a dime. So it's like everyone's making these decisions, policymakers. And again, I don't envy anyone like for all the, you know, calumny that is rained down upon various governors and mayors across the political spectrum. Like these are all super hard decisions. But it's like, yes, the bars are open, the playgrounds are closed. It's like, why the hell is that the case? And the answer is because the bars are going to go out of business and the playgrounds you can close. So like, we're just going to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that logic was permeated so much of this, again, creating these like weird distortions in all of our collective perception of risk and behavior. Well, it's also a shock um, if you're kind of an upper middle class person Right. The government has done a lot for you, you know, especially if you're a product of public schools. But you're not, I think, usually typically hyper aware of your dependence on the government. So all of a sudden you think like, wait, you're just you're just you're just there's just not going to be school. What? Um, you know, and, and then you feel it again with the with the vaccines, the like right for the when for the first time you're following the news really closely because decisions and competence at the 
federal level is going to is has become like a matter of life or death for you. You know, I mean, when that thing where where Megan McCain was saying that Anthony Fauci should be fired because she doesn't know when she's going to get the vaccine. On the one hand, that's nuts. On the other hand, I think it was an example of this shock of right. dependence that's something that that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people experience all the time, but a whole class of people have never experienced before. Right. And in fact, the way that government works, you know, in in the U.S. is that like it's like the better off you are, the more affluence you have, the sort of less you have to deal with like the frustrations of government, you know, bureaucracy and hassle. Um, and the worse off you are, the more you're constantly dealing with it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, And that's like that. this is an ultimate penalty for anyone that's ever tried to like collect a disability check or has had to try to uh, go. I mean. Jesus, go through the the child welfare services for a complaint that your kid should be taken away. You know, like those, that level of dependent life or death stakes on a government bureaucracy, which is going to de- determine these outcomes and having to navigate it and deal with it and the hassle and the, and the sort of punishing nature of that, you know, people in relatively affluent, of relatively middle class or upper middle class or affluent backgrounds you know, are free from that. You're right. Like all of a sudden it's like this vaccine, which is administered by the government is what everything hangs on. And it's like, wait a second. (laughs) I don't don't like this feeling. It's like, yeah, well, well, yeah, welcome. Right. I mean, it's rationing. And like, you know, a lot of things in our society are rationed, but they're usually rationed in a way that's invisible to you if you can afford it. Exactly. Well, they're rationed by price. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's how markets work. Markets, that's literally the definition of what they do. They ration by price. And so when there's something that's, that's literally life-saving or, or world-changing, that's not rationed by price, you know, that you get, (laughs) this is what you get. And I think that's, you know, it's been interesting to see, you know, how this, this, you know, the vaccination project, which maybe is a good place to sort of a, a, a good note for us, like, as we think about this year is like, you know, in some ways, I think like if done well, and I so far I would give it like I would give it a B to B minus with room to improve. If done well is like a moment where you can really see a transformative government intervention that like alters society and people's lives in a way that it's hard to find in my living memory antecedent for. Well, and it's hard for me. I don't think anybody yet knows. I mean, it's clear that it has gotten dramatically better. And I don't you know, and, and that, that dramatic improvement has coincided with Joe Biden becoming president. And I think that probably has some, you know, competent governance has something to do with that. I don't think we know yet how much of like the ramp up in production you can tie to, you know, kind of the government getting more involved in supply chains and, you know, kind of doing normal things that a functioning government would do about like coordinating with states by distribution. I mean, but things are obviously improving. Um, it's still such a, you know, I'm, I'm in the Johnson and Johnson trial and. Oh, you are? Yeah. And when I got into it, I like. Oh, right. You wrote about this, right? Yeah. I felt when I got into it, I was like, oh my God, I've like gotten away with something. I've like, you know, I'm, I'm skipping the line. And I, you know, I was so like proud of myself. <laughs> I was so excited. I like went, I got this shot. I had this feeling of like out of body ecstasy when I got this shot. And then <laughs> like, and then, you know, the next day I just absolutely knew I had gotten placebo. Um, I've gotten so many vaccines in my life. I'm like very over vaccinated. Um, you know, before I had kids, I was always, you know, most years I would go t- to sub-Saharan Africa or India or both. And I was always forgetting what vaccines I got and just getting them all over again. And so I feel like I had this sense of, you know, you would at least feel something, a bruise, like some, something. And I, you know, and it was like this reverse hypochondria of like, okay, come on, I think it, I think I feel some soreness. I think it's there. Like, no, it's not there. And so, you know, so, so ever since then, I, I'm almost, I mean, I would, I would bet. Wait, do you know? I don't know, but I would bet almost anything that I don't have it. And it's a very strange feeling <laughs> to go into the, you know, the place where I go for, um, you know, follow-up visits and to kind of know that down the hall is this medicine that would save my life if they gave it to me, but they're just not going to give it to me. Right. Right? And it's, I think, true for everyone on some level. Yes. Yeah. I do think, though, like, again, this test to me, I don't know. I, I here's, here's my, like, positive. Here's my positive gloss. This is my, again, I'm, I'm in a very, like, optimistic best-case scenario mindset these days, which has been nothing but a, a, a way to get your heart broken for the last year. But 
you know, if we get people vaccinated, if the if the numbers keep going up, you know, we, we had a bad week last week because of the weather. We were down to about like 1.3 a day. Before that, we'd gotten up to almost 1.7, you know, weekly average of shots a day. We had gotten up, we'd done a few days at 2.3, 2.4. You know, if we can get 3 million shots a day, which I think is achievable, and we can keep that up, then we're really looking like, you know, a summer that looks close to normal. And, you know, my brother's getting married this summer. <laughs> I like, I want to take a trip. I want to, I want to do karaoke. I want to <laughs> go to a bar. Like, I want to have, you know, all these things. And I just, I do, I, here's what I hope. My hope is that the things that we've lost this year, and there's some things that we can never get back, most notably the people we've lost who are gone forever. But the things we have lost that can come back, that we do have a moment where we, like, cherish and appreciate them at a whole new level. And that won't last, I don't think, but I do think there's something to that. Like, I look forward both to it at the first level, first order of – but I also look forward to, like, recognizing how precious, <laughs> like, time with the people we love is, for Right, like, like how, like, utterly ecstatic you would be to have, like, a big group dinner or something that, like that. That is the one thing I keep coming back to, yes, a big group dinner with friends, yes. And, I mean, this is, like, an overdone observation, right, that the Roaring Twenties followed the um, deadly flu that, like, I've yes. never, you know, that nobody ever thought about, <laughs> but that now you totally understand yes. why that was. I mean, I'm old, right? I don't go to nightclubs anymore. But, no. But suddenly I've been like, fantasizing about that. I, you know what? I have this thought about, I thought a thought about, I, it's funny you say that. I had a thought about, um, I've been having, by the way, I don't know if you've been having this. I've been having dreams that are, there's two types of dreams. One is like a dream. I'm sure you've had this. A lot of people have this where like you're inside a crowded thing. I'll be, be at like an awards dinner. And then like midway through part, some part of your brain's like, it's a pandemic. And you're like, fuck, oh God, I got to put my mask on or I got to, you know. <laughs> and then the other one I have are like, are like, I've been having dreams that are like, lurid dreams of like getting a drink in a bar. <laughs> they're like, they're like <laughs> fantasies basically of like totally mundane things. And they're like ecstatic dreams. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, you totally understand that. And I do think that like, there is going to be a place. I think there's going to be a place we're going to be processing this for a long time, but I think there's some place to find like some, you know, there's some joy. It's like, that, that You know that feeling you have, I think about a lot, if you've ever been either really badly injured, like a bad nagging injury, or really sick, um, you know, knocked out with something, the feeling you have when like the injury is healed and it goes away, or you have your first full day where you're like, oh, I feel like I'm in my body again, and how that how you have that feeling of like, I take for granted so much that these, <laughs> these basic things like, you know, when, when, when pain goes away from an injury or, or you feel healthy again, of just like that almost ecstatic feeling you have like, God, I am lucky to live in this body and be healthy right now. But at this point, it's so hard. For, I keep having all this anxiety because it's so hard for me to even imagine getting there. I keep thinking like, you know, okay, people I know are getting vaccinated, right? Like it's almost in sight, but it's, you know, I mean, it almost feels to me like when you are, well, it, it feels to me like being pregnant and you can't imagine that you're actually going to get to the other side of it, right? You're just, you're lying on the couch, you're miserable and uncomfortable, but you still just can't conceive that, <laughs> that you're getting past this moment. Yes. Well, I, the, what I keep comparing it to is to me, it's like if you're in a car ride and you have to use the bathroom and like. There's a long time where you can kind of just like put it out of your mind, but the last five minutes of the drive are the worst. And then like getting the key in the door, like it feels like that part where it's like, it's now, it's possible enough that I'm now thinking about it in a way that's like way less tolerable. Well, I don't know. I've never, I've never found any of this tolerable. And it's really surprised me that the extent to which other people have um, acclimated to it you know, which I think is, again, something that's wrong with me fundamentally. Like fundamentally, if I'm in a bad situation, I will do everything I can to get out of it. And that served me really well in life up until now when there's like a situation that there is no extracting yourself from. You know, so early on, I was like, we're going to get out of this. That's why I got into the clinical trial, um, right? I was like, I'm I'm finding a way out. But um, but there is no way out. And I mean, it, it almost reminds me of high school. Like I, I went to a really big 
um, kind of industrial public high school for a year. And it was so awful. And I used to go to class and I would look around and I would think, how is anybody putting up with this? This is this is unbearable. Like they're they're like torturing us with boredom. You have to ask permission to go to the bathroom or to like get a breath of fresh air. And like you're just acting like this is okay. Like how? And and you know, I eventually like, you know. I eventually arranged to get myself a scholarship to like alternative hippie high school. And then I arranged to skip a grade so that I could get out of there. Um, you know, but, but again, that sort of like inability to put up with what everyone else is putting up with has been both like a blessing in my life and a curse, but has really been a curse the past year when I just am like, how is everybody not screaming from like morning <laughs> until night? Like, how are you standing this? <laughs> Michelle Goldberg is an opinion columnist in New York Times. Uh, she is the author of a bunch of great books, all of which you should check out. Well, Michelle, hopefully you and I can have dinner together soon. I hope so. Once again, great thanks to my friend Michelle Goldberg, who is just a great writer. I love her column in the New York Times. I'm sure uh, you have encountered it before, but if not, you should check it out. You could tweet us with the hashtag withpod, email withpod at gmail.com. Why is this happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by the All In Team, and features music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here, by going to nbcnews.com slash why is this happening. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 